My guest today is Ben Ippolito. He's a research fellow here at AEI, where he studies public finance and health economics. He's here today to discuss the debate surrounding single-payer health care, in particular Medicare for All, which a number of Democratic presidential candidates or potential candidates have been discussing. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Mm, Very good to be here, Jim. Before we get into Medicare for All, I think some listeners would wonder why this is even sort of a uh, a topic or or a hot policy proposal uh, by various candidates. We just had a big health care reform plan, the Affordable Care Act. What is seen lacking in the Affordable Care Act that Democrats are sort of coming back to the table and saying we need another big change to the American health care system? Well, I think we had so much fun for the last 10 years now of discussing nothing but the Affordable Care mm-hmm. Act that I think people are just sort of addicted to <laughs> addicted to discussing the discussing health care, um, changing health care. No. So, I mean, the, the ACA did a bunch of things, uh, expanded coverage. It it saw that was its main sort of a, a target, which was increasing coverage. But it didn't it didn't really fundamentally address a lot of the key issues in health care, namely cost of care. And that's one of the things that I think is really spurning this this issue on. So we still have about 30 million people who are uninsured. Mm-hmm. We still spend about $3.5 trillion a year on health care. That's 18% of GDP. That's money that we could use to do all sorts of other things, but we're funneling it all to health care. And so there's this big appetite to look at that pot of money and say, geez, if we could just cut that down by 20%, we'd have a ton of money to play with. And so I think fundamentally it's this issue that at a certain point we cannot let healthcare eat the entire budget. So we got to do something. Right. But but is that what is driving the push for Medicare for all? Is it people worried about costs, or is it insuring more people? Uh, is it making healthcare more affordable for more people by funneling it all through the government? What what is actually what what is driving it? So it depends what policy in particular you're talking about. All right, all right. I, I think we'll get into this. But, I mean, when you actually go through the list of proposals that are out there, they vary considerably depending on whether they're actually talking about universal coverage or whether it's single payer or whether it's Medicaid or Medicare buy-in and so on. So the, the goals vary a little bit. I think one of the unifying themes you at least hear rhetorically coming out of the Democrats at this point is that health care is a human right. And therefore, right. we need to do everything we can to, to expand the system so that everybody's included. And then at the same time, there's this idea that, boy, if we just do it this way where we funnel things to the government, costs are going to tumble as we do that. I think just the name, Medicare for All, I think the average person would understand that as meaning that Let's break it down. We, have, we have Medicare, <laughs> Yes. all right, and all would get it. So the what, right. what you know so the, under the, the traditional so, definition right. of those words, right? <laughs> then would right. imagine everyone that would get that. So we have uh, so people, uh, you know, if you're um, uh, that your parents or maybe your grandparents get Medicare, I think uh, you would think, well, gee, that that means under this plan, I would be getting Medicare as a as a younger person. But that that's. Does it you, ever mean? Does, does any plan mean that, or, or there, is, it, does, is there at least one plan that that kind of common sense definition is what Medicare for all means, or does it, do none of them actually mean that? Ah, uh, no. No, no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no. So the common sense. Defi- all right. I was trying to find the one that was closest, but really right. none of them are frankly that close. All right. So, so the, let's give the, us a maybe flavor of what they actually are talking. The, the about. closest. The closest thing. Is going to be plans that discuss buy-ins. Mm-hmm. So there are some plans. Let me let's start at the high the high level, which right. is 
What exactly, just conceptually, are we talking about here? So there's one camp that's sort of the Bernie Sanders-style camp, which is let's eliminate all private insurance. Right. Let's have everybody in the country on this one government plan. Right. Okay, so he envisions a plan. He might call it Medicare. Right. It doesn't actually resemble Medicare, but he might call it Medicare, and everyone has it. So in that sense, he's nailing the second half of the phrase, right. or all. Right. There are other plans that are a bit more nuanced and perhaps less disruptive. So there are plans that, for example, might let you buy in to, say, pay premiums and join, say, Medicare or something that looks like Medicare. So those are closer to nailing the first part of the phrase, Medicare. Right. They're not as much about the second part of the phrase, for all. So there is a fundamental difference, and I think practically you can think about it as how disruptive do we want to be? On one hand, Bernie Sanders is saying, let's just go whole hog and just do this thing. And other people are saying, no, 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 that's going to be very complicated. That's going to be disruptive to the 150-plus million Americans with employer-sponsored insurance. Let's do something that sort of fills in the cracks and allows for more people on government insurance. Right. So uh, a lot of people are getting insurance through their employer. The polls I've seen seem to suggest some level of satisfaction with that health insurance. Um, But under uh, the Sanders plan, which I think some other uh, people in Congress have have, uh, signed up for, uh, those people would be getting a a different health care plan. They would be getting a government health care plan. But would there be any would there be any private insurance? I thought I thought there there might still be some private insurance for like whatever whatever not covered, though. I guess I don't even know what. That would that would suppose that something would not be covered. Right. So under the Sanders plan, you really should think of, of the Bernie Sanders version of this as one end of the spectrum. Right. And it's sort of the rainbows and unicorns end of the spectrum. Right. Right. So it's literally everyone's covered. Right. It's all provided by the government. There's no cost sharing. There's no deductibles. There's no coinsurance. You go to the doctor. You don't have to fork over any money. There's none of that anymore. Right. Okay. So that's one. So that and that's just like Medicare. <laughs> No. That's very <laughs> – so literally other than the fact that, of course, Medicare does have a deductible yeah. for Part A, which is $1,400 or so. It has coinsurance when you go to the doctor or when you go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. It has copays and things of that nature. Other than those slight differences, okay. yes, it's very similar. Okay. Um, so the the other end of the spectrum – and it's worth noting, I think just to put some context on this, the House is where – this has been getting a lot of, a lot of attention. And so the House, the – Medicare for All Caucus, as it's called, mm-hmm. now has almost 80 members. So this is not like a, a tiny group. Right. Um, and one of the things that that comes out of the fact that this is a fairly fairly large group is that there are, I think, six plans now that have been introduced in Congress or proposed in Congress, mm-hmm. and none of them are the same. Uh, and so when you get to the other end of the spectrum, I think you should think about you know ideas where they – Try and let people keep their employer-sponsored insurance, but then sort of come in and, and let you perhaps buy into the Medicaid program and the Medicare program. Um, but that's very different from what, what Bernie Sanders and, and his co-sponsors are proposing. Right. Um, so, I mean, under the uh, Sanders plan, which I've, I've been hearing sort of more about lately, I think yeah. uh, Kamala Harris, I think she may have been a co-sponsor, and she talked about uh, Medicare for All recently. Um, and she talked about getting rid of uh, private health insurance. So I think she's, to some degree, has backtracked on, on the getting rid of private health insurance part. Um, but, I mean, choices still need to be made. Under 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 that kind of Medicare for All plan, they literally can't – some choices to be made about what you cover and not cover and to the extent you cover something. 
Right. Right. So uh, do you have any sense of how it makes those choices? The Sanders plan? Yeah. Well, it makes those choices by saying that nobody has to pay for anything. But it can't. But the answer. <laughs> but but it can't. It certainly can't. Co- it certainly can't cover every possible thing someone would want medical care for. Uh, what do you? Uh, <laughs> I guess I don't know. Is that, so I don't everything. know what kind of what kind I, of string. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Does it? You know? Uh, would it? Uh, you know? Would it? Would it? Would it cover? Um, you, know, you know? All all manner of plastic surgery. That I do not know. Right. Um, that I do not know. I do not know if he knows that. Right. Uh, him being uh, Senator Sanders, there. The right. the trade off though. So he like if I was a base if I was a baseball pitcher and I wanted that and, and uh, I wanted the uh, Tommy John surgery, sure. which, which supposedly what actually actually makes you a better pitcher. Get you back out there, anyway. right? Get you. Ba- uh, that's that be covered. Jim, we're getting very into the meat. <laughs> but it doesn't come. But, the, but the, there, there are choices. Let me make a note. I'm going to note up right. the hill. But there are choices. Yeah. yeah, right. So there are choices. The the Sanders plan is makes the minimal number of those choices. Right. right. So it really is envisioning this world where it has a very generous coverage set, whether it includes Tommy John surgeries or not. Laser, laser eye surgery? We're, laser eye surgery. Right. <laughs> the list expands. <laughs> Complications grow. Right. Um, but it envisions making very few of those trade-offs. Right. All right. And you don't have to worry about how much you can pay when you go to the doctor and your deductibles and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Now, where the, the trade-offs that it implicitly makes and the trade-offs that the bills and the proposals tend to not talk about is how the heck you pay for something like that. Right. So in the case of the Bernie Sanders plan, we're talking about in a 10-year projection, about $32 trillion, uh, the federal government need to pay $32 trillion more uh, for, for, uh, in order to fund this plan. And so you, be, you get to this issue of you know, $32 trillion is not, is not pocket change. You have to raise a lot of money in order to do this. And so what Sanders and, and the, the plan's proponents would say is that, yeah, 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 but you don't have to pay premiums anymore. So right, you right. Save uh, on all your that's right. So, and right. So you're just you're just kind of shifting the money around. Right. That's what they would say. They would say we're shifting the money around and we're getting these savings coming from the fact that the federal government doesn't need to worry about making profits and things like that. Um, that doesn't change the fact that raising thirty two trillion dollars in taxes is a Herculean lift. Um, how exactly that would be accomplished is not something that's been, shall we say, ironed out yet. Uh, but it is something that fundamentally is the biggest trade-off and the biggest challenge it's going to face. Well, I mean, uh, have, have, the, have the suggestions just been, I don't know, we, uh, we need to raise top income taxes? Have they talked about value-added taxes? Yeah, a lot of what – I mean, so frankly, a lot of what you hear uh, coming from – and this is not Senator Sanders specifically, but, mm-hmm. but in general, this sort of Medicare for All caucus is, no, 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 we need to focus right now mm-hmm. on making sure we agree on a policy choice – and we're all going to see, you know, let's all put out our proposals right now. Don't worry about the funding side of things. Right. Let's get this policy set first, and then we'll pay for it. Right. And, it, you know, as you look at this and as you kind of forecast for what's going to actually happen over the next next few years, it's, it's instructive to kind of think back to what the Republicans went through in the past right. 10 years now, where – they they sort of spent a lot of time saying, geez, this is, you know, Obamacare is terrible and so on. We're going to change it. We're going to propose something great and it's going to be new. And they sort of twiddled their thumbs and didn't really come up with a cohesive proposal. So what the Democrats are saying right now is we are trying to do that really important step that the Republicans didn't do. We're going to hash out all the details right now and we're going to figure out the policy. And then when it comes time that we have all the chambers and we have the White House, we're going to be able to hit the ground running and we'll find some pay for us when we get there. The only thing is, 
if we're talking about something that looks anything like the Sanders plan, finding the pay for us is not a trivial issue. That's $32 trillion over 10 years. That's a lot of money. Right. And as you, and as you mentioned earlier, one, uh, one goal would be to get a handle on health care spending. We as a country spend a lot more as a share of our economy than – yeah, so it seems we're, like just about everybody. So we're at $3.5 trillion a year, yeah. um, and we're – that's about 18, All right. 18% of our GDP. So, so you know, what's, what, what are Canada and Great Britain at? Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, so it varies a little bit by country, but think like 9, 10, 11%. Right. So, so I, th- I think some people would say, well, gee, if we're going to go to a system that resembles a system in those countries – Boy, we really are going to save a lot of money. Right. Uh, we'll be saving just tremendous amounts of money, right? Because uh, then we can get our healthcare spending down something to what we see in those other countries. Is that a likely um, scenario? Yeah. So to to answer that question, I think it's instructive to look at well, how have these trends evolved over time? Right. And if you go back and look at healthcare spending as a function of or as a, a percent of GDP. You know, in the 1970s, 1980s, the United States actually looked very similar to all these other European countries that we we typically compare ourselves to. Mm -hmm. What's happened is that in the 80s and the 90s, we really grew very fast. Our healthcare spending grew very fast. There's not one sort of uh, neat and tidy reason that that economists sort of agree on. Uh, There are a bunch of candidates, but... What happened was there was this great, great divergence, as it, as it were. And since about... The healthcare spending grew very fast here, yes. not so fast in those other places. Yes, that's exactly right. So we, we skyrocketed above right. all the other countries in right. terms of spending as a fraction of our GDP. What's interesting and what makes this question a little bit more challenging is to think about the last 20 years. Right. The last 20 years, we haven't actually grown in terms of healthcare spending much faster than any of those countries that we're comparing ourselves to. We're, we're at a much, much higher level. So you know, any growth means big numbers. But in terms of what we think will happen if we adopt one of those systems, the last 20 years doesn't exactly say we're going to talk about huge savings. Now, there might be savings. All right. There might be real savings. But it is, it is a very instructive thing to think about. Geez, why is it that these countries that ostensibly have much more cost-effective systems why haven't they grown slower over the last 20 years? So it sounds like it would not be your expectation that uh, – what do we as a share? Was it about 18%? 18%. 18% that if we would adopt Medicare for all, that we're, that we're going to go down to 10%. Maybe we would go down to somewhat right. or maybe we wouldn't keep going up as, as much. So it or? depends a lot. So you know, all of this depends a lot on which specific right. policy you're talking yeah. about. But let's talk about the Senator Sanders yeah. uh, proposal because that's the one that's been actually scored at least by – not by the CBO but by other other entities. And in there what, what basically happens is the prediction is the government would, of course, as we say, absorb a ton of health care spending. So about right. $32 trillion over right. 10 years. However – Total healthcare expenditures for the country weren't predicted to actually change very much. I think, and I'm trying to remember, there was there are two different uh, independent uh, estimates for the plan. But I think one of them has us being down maybe a couple hundred billion dollars, which is a very small in terms of percentages when you think about three and a half trillion dollars a year as the base. Right. And how would what what is the plan? What and what is the Sanders plan? How does propose dealing? With costs, if thought this is about costs and what we're spending, what is it sort of, uh, you know, what is the, what is the mechanism it uses that would be different than sort of the 
yeah. what we have now. So there's there's a couple things. So usually people will point to administrative cost savings, which you know there's some truth to this. It, it's often overblown just because of some technical details of how these numbers are reported. But suffice it to say, if you don't make any profit, you don't care about making any profit, then yeah, there's a few percentage points there. But the biggie is is just payment or price cuts, excuse me. So we pay higher prices in the United States than most other countries, at least privately insured patients do. Mm-hmm. And so what Senator Sanders' plan would envision is basically everyone that's on private insurance right now, all 155 million Americans, rather than pay their physicians what they currently pay them, they're going to pay them something more like what Medicare pays. And that so. It's easy to say, you know, oh, well, it's another insurer. Well, they probably pay something in the ballpark of what private insurers pay. That is not true at all in healthcare. So it was true maybe 20, 30 years ago that payment rates didn't differ that much. But right now, privately insured patients pay hospitals, for example, close to two times as much Medicare as, as much as Medicare does. And so you're talking about very large payment reductions from the privately insured population, which is a very, very substantial one. And so that gets you a lot of money. It also presents an extraordinary uh, roadblock for actually implementing that kind of plan. Why? <laughs> Let's think about the the most powerful. Just pay, lobbyists. pay them. Just pay them. Li- pay, pay them less. <laughs> so I think the American Hospital Association is not going to like that. Right. The uh, AMA, American Medical Association, right. big pharma, who right. Sanders, of course, is is often critical of. Um, but more than just I, this is much much deeper than just being a lobbying issue. Right. So you really have to understand that over the last, especially 20 years or so, healthcare has been a huge job creator. Right. So if you look back at job growth numbers, I think I think 2003 was the last quarter we ever we saw the number of healthcare jobs not grow. Even through the Great Recession, all of 2008, all of 2009, 2010, there was never a decrease in any quarter in the number of people employed in healthcare. And so what that says is there are a lot of people for whom these costs that we're talking about are their incomes. Right. And so it is a Herculean task to think about every hospital and every district and all the people that rely on it for their incomes and start talking about cutting rates by half. Right. Uh, would as many people want to be doctors? No, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. I mean, I mean, whatever. I mean, the the one downside when I hear about um, healthcare plans in other countries, I always talk about you know it's it's trouble getting a doctor. There's mm-hmm. long waits. How do we avoid that happening in the United States? You increase the number of people that are doctors. All right. Is that, <laughs> so, I mean, well, that, how would we do that? So honestly, also... that's something we could we could do better right now. And frankly, actually, it's one of the ways in which uh, the current administration's proposals um, may be detrimental to healthcare. Actually, is that one of the things that uh, is a limiting factor in this country? There's only so many medical schools. There's only so many, only so many medical seats. We only license so many of uh, various different specialties and so on. Um, we actually import a bunch of doctors, uh, especially to serve in rural areas and things like right. that. Um, we, so, are you saying we could import more? Why not? Well, I mean, it'd be nice if they go to school or something. But I mean, uh, <laughs> in general, right. sure. Right, we could bring them all. Or just, we, you know, make more bring medical seats or what, you know, right. more medical schools. Or what people often talk about is is scope of practice regulation, which is what can any given healthcare professional actually do at their right. job? And there's very strict rules about that. They vary by state. Um, so there are ways to try and increase the supply of, of uh, physicians and of healthcare providers. Um, but in general... You know, right. economics isn't that complicated. Right. You lower the price, fewer people do something, you get less yeah, supply, right. it's harder, you know. Right. 
would you have any concerns about uh, healthcare uh, innovation, new, yeah. new techniques, new medical equipment, new kinds of drugs under such a system? Sure. So the there is this fundamental, either intentional, just, you know, it, it, either, you know, people are just ignoring reality or there's just a deep misunderstanding about how the healthcare market works. The healthcare market works like every other market. Profits are the you know unfortunate thing that we need to drive innovation and drive people to want to be doctors and you know to get the best students and things like that. And so I think there's there's this idea that this is what economists might call partial equilibrium reasoning. Mm-hmm. This idea that well if we just hold everything else equal, but we just pay a lot less. Well, then wouldn't everything be better? And the answer is, of course, everything would be better as long as you're not one of the people who is getting paid less. But people are going to respond when you pay them less and you pay less for drugs and things of that nature. And you can see this all over the place. So there are good examples of – so, for example, um, the pharmaceutical uh, industry is the easiest easiest way, I think, to think about this. But, you know, malaria is a truly, from a global welfare standpoint, horrible disease. Mm Um, if we were trying to maximize global welfare, we should be spending a ton of resources on trying to cure malaria, right? Since I think it's the mid-2000s, I believe there have been six registered clinical trials to study cures for malaria. Um, and I apologize if I'm getting the exact number wrong. But since the over the same time period, there's been something like 250 trials about how to get rid of gout, Right. right. Gout is like literally the disease of kings. It's you, know, right. it's you eat too much fatty food and drink too much alcohol. You develop this this acid or this this stuff in your joints and it's kind of painful and all that. But it's nowhere near as important from some sort of societal perspective as curing malaria would be. But of course, the people who have malaria are poor right. and the people who have gout are wealthy and they're willing to pay a lot for drugs. And so drug companies invest accordingly. Um, and so simply assuming that reality away is not something that is either productive or, frankly, uh, it's not something I think anyone wants to do. And so maybe it's just more ignoring it. But it's something that fundamentally, if you really want to do this, you need to sit down and think hard hard about what kind of trade-offs are we willing to make in terms of innovation and, and things of that nature. And if you're Senator Sanders, you're proposing a plan that would involve very, very large trade-offs. Um I don't hear those trade-offs discussed. Are they? Am I just not? You no. know, you're closer to the debate than I am. Are they? Not, are they just not discussed? Are they minimized in some way? Well, they're just kind of assumed away. I mean, think about how you hear the pharmaceutical industry discussed. Right. Um, I think again, it's the easiest one to conceptualize what what is innovation and so right. on. Um, but but you know, when when Senator Sanders, for example, talks about drug companies. You know, what does he talk about? He talks about how they're fleecing Americans and how, you know, these drugs, you know, once they go generic, they cost nothing. But while they're on brand, they cost a fortune and so on and how that's so unfair and everything. And I'm not, you know, going to going to disagree with the notion that the fact that we need profits does kind of suck. It would be nice if everyone just really wanted to invent new drugs and all that. You know, I, right. that'd be great. But it's just not the reality. Right. Um, and so and so when you hear these plans discussed, when you hear the words, you know, what are the potential costs, generally the only thing you ever hear is, well, how would you fund it? That's not the only trade-off that you need to think about. And frankly, it might not be the most important one in the long term. Right. Um, are there aspects of, again, we'll talk about probably the uh, uh, the most 
uh, you know, extreme, those disruptive, those are negative words, or the most expansive, again, most expansive Medicare for all plan, uh, the sort of Bernie Sanders plan. Uh, are there aspects of it you, you, you like? Are there things it would achieve which would be good things um, that are, uh, you know, that are worth pointing out? I mean, well, more everyone would have health care, right? That 30 million, that would be zero, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it's worth keeping in mind that that 30 million isn't necessarily 30 million people who have absolutely no access to health care. That includes millions of people who, for example, are qualified to have Medicaid who just haven't signed up and so that they would effectively have retroactive coverage if they went to a hospital. So, But having said that, expanding coverage is a, is a laudable goal. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I frankly think that was a completely fine goal for, for the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. The thing that is more challenging about it is to think seriously about, okay, if we're going to expand all these these things, then A, how are we going to pay for it? And B, what kind of trade-offs are we really trying to make? And I think that's the discussion that I get very frustrated that it just never happens. And so, you know, an example, an example of a related bill that Senator Sanders recently proposed mm-hmm. was a bill about drug pricing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, drug pricing has been in the news a lot lately. Um, but he proposed that if a price rise sufficiently fast – then a, any drug's patent protection could be ended at will by the HHS secretary, right. all right? Whether you hate drug prices or not, the world of drug pr- drugs, the early risky st- early stage development is done by biotech firms and is funded by venture capital money. They are then, if they are successful, bought up by, you know, quote unquote, big pharma, and then they develop the products and bring them to market. But venture capital... That, fun- that funding isn't guaranteed to just stay within pharmaceuticals if you drastically lower the returns to making a drug. They're going to go make some app or some new sort of, I don't know, skateboard sharing app or something. Right. You know, like, right. <laughs> so right. There's other things they can do. There are other things you can do with money, and they will chase profits. And you cannot simply assume that away. You need to stand up and say, okay, where are we spending too much money relative to what we're getting? Identify those places and make active and you know, transparent decisions about when those trade-offs are worth making. Don't just pretend that they're not there. All right. So uh, as we sort of get to the end here, so what do you see as the biggest problems with American health care? And, you know, without, I guess, going too deep, how do you begin to deal with them? You know, one thing I want to actually add yeah, yeah. that I forgot to say sure. that I think is going to be really important as this debate goes forward is that polling on Medicare for all is one of the craziest things. <laughs> so if you ask people whether they like Medicare oh, for Oh, man, all, they love it. They love it. Right. Everybody that's, loves that's it. Right. It's bipartisan. Well, everybody's favorite, right, you know? Yeah. And uh, so it's like 70% approval. As soon as you start even suggesting that there are trade-offs to be made, say, higher taxes, or you might have to wait a little bit longer, you know, right. that might be a reasonable trade-off somebody would make. Favorability plummets to like 25%. Okay, so it's extremely sensitive to what exactly is proposed and what the trade-offs are. And so I think as we move forward, thinking about the public response and and the public favorability to these different iterations of Medicare for All is going to determine a lot of what ends up actually happening. All right. So given given sort of what the current healthcare system is like and sort of what most Americans expect, what what are are some problems and what are some just broadly – ways that you think about approaching those problems. Yeah, so it's it's kind of hard to in the next like two and a half minutes. So we're I see. I see. I see. <laughs> so, That's easy. So if you if I could it's just trade off. <laughs> trade off. If 
I could just distill my thoughts on the entirety of American healthcare, that would be outstanding. Um, so I think it's, it's just a guy to do it. One of the one of the things that makes America exceptional in terms of healthcare is that our system is very fragmented, and so it's kind of hard to weave a unified theory across all of this. But I think the one theory that stands out to me is that we're very very good at the front end of this healthcare issue, which is we subsidize the living hell out of it. Right. So whether it's employer-sponsored insurance, which we make tax exempt, whether it's Medicaid, which the federal government effectively is a passive payer uh, indefinitely and so on, we're very good at funding the thing and lowering costs to people on the margin. So we're good at encouraging use. Right. We are terrible at controlling costs, whether you think the government's the best at doing that or you think people are. We don't. We have very few tools that actually constrain spending. And so I'll go back to the example I had earlier, which was uh, pharmaceuticals. So in pharmaceuticals, the way Medicare pays for drugs in the hospitals, they say, we'll pay whatever the market pays plus 6%. So they're a completely passive payer. And what happens? Well... A, if you're a doctor, you really like you really like dispensing really expensive drugs because six percent of a really expensive drug is a big number. Right. Uh, and and the same thing is if you're that venture capital firm or you're that big pharma firm, you really want to invest in some of these these really big big blockbuster drugs that are going to be pretty expensive. And that's how we get so for example a ton of innovation that generates relatively marginal improvements to say oncology treatment, where really you might look at that and say, wait a minute. This incentive structure is all screwy. We need to restructure this thing so that we actually incentivize cost-efficient investments. And so those are the kinds of trade-offs that we need to be making. But if we're going to do this, we can't just pretend they're not there and say, you know, it'll be fine if we just set low prices. We need to be much more explicit about which of those trade-offs do we think are worth making and then do it in a transparent way. Right. And just uh, as we finish up, we, we mentioned earlier uh, how uh, healthcare costs – there's not hasn't been a, there hasn't been a, a huge difference for a while between these countries, which do have very different systems, which have far more government involvement than the United States, even though we have plenty of government involvement in our mm-hmm. current healthcare system. So is so so it doesn't sound like that that's the way either. I mean, they haven't figured. I mean, that way they haven't figured it out there either, right? Am I well? I mean, so yes and no. So in the last fifteen years, or yeah, you know, yeah. approximately, yeah, we've been on pretty. Pretty similar trends. Right. The difference is they didn't have the 80s and 90s. Right, right. And so the the issue we need to think about is, okay, what the heck happened right. in the 80s and 90s? And, and what has gotten us to a level that is so absurdly high? And what are we willing to give up? They made choices to forego certain things that we didn't. Right. And those choices were made a little while ago. But they, it, they still matter today. So fundamentally, we need to make some decisions that, as a country, we haven't made, but others have. And, and frankly, I don't know that I, when I look out on the health policy debate, I see anyone really uh, trying to make those difficult decisions. I see more of this efforts to kind of obfuscate them behind these, these sort of shiny-sounding shiny things like Medicare for All. My guest today has been Ben Ippolito. Dr. Ippolito, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, sir. 